So it's scandal part two this morning. And if you've been traveling with us here at Fellowship of Faith, you've seen that we've been going through this part of the Old Testament called Isaiah for the better part of the school year, particularly the back half of this book. And the more you read Isaiah, and I hope you do, I hope you try not only reading it, but rereading it again and again, because there's something about layering through this, this complex but amazing book that, that brings things to light the more you get familiar with it. What you'll see is if you go through it again and again, there's a few different categories or, or classes, if you will, of relationships God seems to enter into in the story that Isaiah is telling. Now, last week we saw about a relationship between God and a group of people that he specifically calls his chosen people. Today, though, we're going to look at a different category or group, and it's a relationship that God has not with these people he calls his chosen people per se directly, but more specifically, a relationship he has with his chosen people's enemies. And so let me walk you through. Now, throughout the Bible, and not just Isaiah, but throughout the entire Bible, there's a certain cycle that tends to repeat on the big scale, a certain cycle that tends to repeat, and it's a cycle of judgment. And I think the book of Judges in the Old Testament, chapter 2, is a great place to look. It gives like a great snapshot of how the Bible works on almost a macro scale with this cycle of judgment that circles around. Let me walk you through the steps of what this looks like. God gets angry because his chosen people have gotten nasty. They've gotten calloused and hard-hearted and, and they're contempt-filled and arrogant and, 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 and they've just become kind of rotten to the core. And worse than that, it's not even so much just by their activities, though that's bad enough, but their attitude, their demeanor, it's just kind of filled with a certain contempt, a spite, a callousness, an arrogance, and, and an otherwise disregard for God. So God hands them over to judgment. Step two in the cycle, if you will. God hands them over to judgment. And most notably, the way that this happens is God hands them over to judgment by putting them in the hands of their enemies whom God seems to raise up in one way or another or at best use in one way or another as instruments of his judgment. Step three, it gets rough. And Israel kind of comes to their senses, so they cry out to God. They cry out to God asking for help, which leads to step four, that God raises up some kind of deliverer, some kind of Messiah, some kind of rescue savior figure who often goes and overthrows those enemies and brings Israel back into a place of well, peace and prosperity and comfort. The pressure is off again and suddenly Israel begins to get used to that again and slips back in and the cycle repeats. And you see this cycle happen over and over and over again through the storyline of God and his people in the Bible. 
And I think when you look at it, a couple of observations can be made. First, God seems to use these enemies of Israel as an instrument or a tool in one way or another, a means to an end, if I can put it that way, something that God actually uses to get through to his people. But number two is that those enemies of Israel, though being used as servants of God, though being used as maybe a a tool or an instrument of God, often seem to go too far with it. And so the very ones who become the instrument of judgment from God end up receiving judgment themselves. Now, here's the twist when it comes to Isaiah. Through most of the earlier part of the Bible, particularly Judges and those kinds of books, when Israel cries out, For salvation, God raises up a deliverer, a hero of some kind, and predominantly what that hero does is overthrows the enemies of Israel, and therefore Israel comes to that place of primacy once again. But when you come to the prophet Isaiah, there's a twist. There's something different that happens, that explodes on the scenes of what I want to talk to you about today. That this time, when Israel calls out, God, in fact, does continue the cycle of raising up a deliverer again. But this time, instead of some hero figure to crush their enemies and put them down, the hero or servant becomes Israel themselves. But rather than overthrowing their enemies from their place of brokenness, humiliation, and even victimization, they become a witness to their enemies. And rather than defeat their enemies, they begin to transform their enemies. And so the Nation who goes too far as an instrument of God in punishing them starts to change itself. Are you kind of with me on this? So what I'd like to do then is take you into the story of Isaiah to show you how this plays out. Let's jump into it and see. Now Isaiah 40 to 66, this back half of this book, It's all really about a relationship between Israel and their key enemy of the time, which is a nation called Babylon. Now, we put a map here. Let's put it up on the screen just to kind of help you frame where Babylon is coming from and how big it is. Now, can you find Jerusalem on the map? It's kind of more towards the bottom in the left part of the screen. And in this little nation of Judah, you have this dot called Jerusalem. Do you see it? Do you see it? At the time of Isaiah, the once great nation of Israel is that dot. It is nothing more than Jerusalem. 
And by sheer size, you can start to see how insignificant they are before the power, the expanse, and the might of the one that's center screen, Babylon. Originating way to the right hand of the screen, you can see where it says Elam, and you can see where it says the Persian Gulf, and you can see the city of Babylon itself. But an empire that came to subject hundreds of lesser kingdoms, expanding all over the Fertile Crescent, taking over all of these other nations, and coming into Jerusalem and conquering Jerusalem itself. And Babylon was known for being a nation filled with its own self-aggrandizement a nation that worshipped its own luxury and prominence and power, a nation that from the beginning of the pages of the Bible way back to Genesis was known for its arrogance and pride, a nation that was considered so bad, so ruthless, so arrogant, so idolatrous in setting themselves up as above God, beyond God, superior to God, unconcerned with God that the term Babylon, it becomes somewhat of a literary trope, even through the New Testament, where it becomes like the image, the symbol of anything bad or wrong. The writer of Revelation will talk about Babylon the Great, how Babylon is fallen to refer to Rome and other nations of the day. It might be a way that how people today use Hitler to refer to like the quintessential worst example of anything bad. This is Babylon in the pages of the Bible. In the story of Isaiah, we see that it becomes the servant and the instrument of God. Now, the pattern began like usual. Much of the book of Isaiah, if you take the time to read it, and I encourage you to try, is filled with warning Warning specifically from God through this prophet to the people of Israel. Warning and call to repentance. Because Israel, well, sinful people leaving, leading the sinful pattern again. Filled, we could see through the prophets, filled with idolatry and adultery. Filled with violence and various kinds of injustice. But kind of over all of it, making it all worse, was a certain spirit of apathy, a callousness, you know, a hard-heartedness of one kind or another. Really something that I think was reflecting a contempt inside for God. Yes, they went through the religious motions. Yes, they had the right language. Yes, they mouthed the right phrases. But in their hearts, unconcerned with God far from God, roll their eyes at God, somewhat contemptuous towards God, even a certain, you could say, blasphemy towards God, though not deliberate, but in their attitude. You know it full well. I've got more important things to attend to than God. He's got it covered, so why worry about it? Or why concern myself with him? And these quaint things that he commands us to from the past, well, isn't that cute for those people back then? But we're more sophisticated today, of course, aren't we? And we've got more important things to occupy ourselves with today, don't we? Because as long as life is going well, God really isn't that necessary. And Israel found themselves in the pattern. 
again. So what does God do? He raises up Babylon. He hands Israel over to the consequences of their actions and hands them over to judgment to this arrogant, evil, foreign, pagan power known as Babylon. Let me just share some passages from the prophets with you. This is from Jeremiah. Not Isaiah, but a prophet who writes at the time that Isaiah prophesied about, writing at the very time when Jerusalem was falling under siege to Babylon. Yahweh says, with my great power and outstretched arm, I made the earth and its people and the animals that are on it, and I give it to anyone I please. Now I will hand all your countries over to my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I will make even the wild animals subject to him. All nations will serve him and his son and his grandson until the time for his land comes. Then many nations and great kings will subjugate him. But if, however, any nation or kingdom will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, keep in mind he's saying this to the people of Israel. If any nation will not serve him or bow its neck under his yoke, I will punish that nation with a sword, famine, and plague, declares Yahweh, until I would destroy it by his hand. It's strange that even the worst can be used as servants of God. And God raises Babylon up and hands Israel over to them. But see, this doesn't mean that Babylon is justified and what it does, or in everything it does. Because continuing the pattern, Babylon also goes too far. Let me read to you now from Isaiah himself. He says, To Babylon, sit in silence. Go into darkness, daughter of the Babylonians. No more will you be called queen of kingdoms. I was angry with my people and desecrated my inheritance. I gave them into your hand and showed them, and you showed them no mercy. Even on the aged, you laid a very heavy yoke. That line strikes me as fascinating. I gave them into your hand, but you showed them no mercy. Strange that God gave them into their hands, which is not an act of mercy, but God condemns them for not showing mercy. That even when it would seem God does not show mercy, we are not justified in not showing mercy. That even when it would seem that God does not show mercy, strangely, God still expects us to show mercy 
is God commands. And he says, I gave them into your hand, Babylon. I gave them into your hand, but you showed them no mercy. Even on the aged, you laid a very heavy yoke. And you said, I will continue forever. The eternal queen. But you did not consider these things or reflect on what might happen. So disaster will come upon you. And you will know, you will not know how to conjure it away. A calamity will fall upon you that you cannot ward off with a ransom. A catastrophe you cannot foresee what will suddenly come upon you. It seems to continue the pattern. The judge get judged. But then the judges go too far. But here's the twist. Here's the twist in Isaiah's story. The twist is despite the fact that arrogant pagan Babylon goes too far, God loves Babylon too. Let me read to you this third passage from Isaiah. Listen to me, you islands. Yahweh says, hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, Isaiah writes, Yahweh called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant. Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Here we are, exiled in Babylon, and yet what is due me is in Yahweh's hands. And my reward, yes, it must be, it is with God. And now Yahweh says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to himself and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God has been my strength. He says, is it too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept? In other words, is it too small a thing for you to be the deliverer that would fit the pattern? But more than that, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Here's the twist. Not only will you deliver Israel, but Israel itself will become the deliverer of Babylon because God loves Babylon too. Later, Isaiah will write this. He says, Let no foreigner who has bound himself to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely exclude me from his people. No, to the foreigner who binds themselves to Yahweh to serve him, 
to love the name of Yahweh and to worship him. Who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Not just the chosen ones of God, all nations. Not just the ones we like, all nations. Not just the ones who seems God's ally, but the very enemies of God and his people too. I will make you a light to the nations and to the Gentiles. That God wants them to be his people too. And see, this is what is known as the scandal of grace. The scandal of grace is that God would save my enemy. That God loves my enemy. That God wants to bless my enemy. And that God might actually bless my enemy through me and bless your enemy through you. I knew this guy. He, uh, he hurt me. And he hurt me in a way that was filled with a deep betrayal. In more than just a moment, there was a certain level of consequence and aftermath that came out of the relationship that I had with this person. And you know what? He thrived. He went on to just thrive. And at first, you know, I, I would do this. I would console myself with this kind of thing going, well, you know, his day will come. And then it shifted. It started to shift going, you know, I don't know when that day's gonna be, but the reality is it might even be there now because even though everything looks good on the surface, who knows what's going on beneath the surface? Who knows what's going on underneath? And all the success and all the prosperity and all the joy that he seems to have, you know, maybe underneath it's really just kind of like a rotten core and there's so much family dysfunction and there's so much agony and there's so much guilt and there's so much self-hatred and all these things that I kind of really wished were going on inside and telling myself that maybe was occurring And maybe that was true. I don't know, but then it kind of started to hit me. And I tell you, I don't like these thoughts. God loves him. And maybe God just wants to bless him. God loves him. And God wants to bless him too. Because God does, after all, love the wicked, doesn't he? And as Jesus would say, pours out his blessing like rain on the righteous and the wicked. 
alike. And it hit me. He might just be enjoying the favor and blessing of God, even if I don't want him to. How does it make you feel? Angry? Frustrated? You've got that person in your life, don't you? How does that make you feel when you see that kind of thing? Pissed? That this is just wrong? That's why it's called a scandal. The scandal of grace. The very nature of the word scandal means that this seems wrong. It's so self-evident that this is wrong. Anyone would rise up and go, this is wrong, and this is a moral outrage. Yeah, maybe. Welcome to God and the scandal of grace. And it makes us angry, I think. Because it kind of reveals something a little bit, doesn't it? I think it kind of reveals that deep down in subconscious places, many of us, in at least some degree, think that we're actually more deserving than they are of God's grace. That somehow and in some way, even though we would deny it if asked to our face, believe, at least to some degree, that we're a little bit better than they are. Or that we're a little more deserving than they are. That maybe we've earned it more than they have. Or that the situations in our life are certainly understandable far more than they are in that person that we call our enemy. It reveals something, doesn't it? That no matter what language we want to give it as Christians, all of us, I think, maybe at times, certainly at times, believe we are entitled and deserving, at least in degree more than someone else, of God's grace. And it reveals to me, kind of when I walk through this and think about this, just how absolutely self-deluded we have the tendency to be. But I think of that great passage written in the New Testament that, ooh, just captures it, and I, I urge you, read Isaiah and memorize this. From Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, do you know it? Where Paul writes, you are saved by grace. Through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Sittle, uh, sit there for a moment. Settle into this for a second. Don't let the words go by too fast, for it is by grace. You have been saved, not by your goodness. Not by how deserving of pity you are. Not because somehow you're the poor victim in this situation. No, 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 none of that. It's just you're saved by grace. And it comes through faith. 
And in case Paul's like, you're missing it, no, not of yourselves. No, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. No, I know you want to go back there. No, not by works. So that no one can boast. So that no one can boast. That you and me and each of our enemies are in the same boat, the exact same boat before God that each of us, you, me, and all of our enemies are sinners, deserving of nothing from God except maybe judgment, but that God loves us anyways, you, me, and our enemies. and wants to give all of us grace. You may hate this passage. I wouldn't blame you if you do, and I wouldn't be surprised. You'll love it if you're broken here today. If you're broken in your soul before God, this will be the sweetest gospel you will ever read. But for the other 95% of us, kind of operating in our spiritual life as though God's got it taken care of and I'll occupy myself with other things, when you come face to face with this, it kind of rubs a little bit. It'll give you a spiritual rash if you keep reading it. Abrasive against your soul again and again going, it ain't about you at all. You think you're something? You're nothing. You're nothing when it comes to the living God. Worthy of nothing. But he loves you anyway. And he showers on your grace. And your enemy too. Read it with me if it doesn't cause you to, cause you to vomit on your mask. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works. So that no one can boast. And thanks be to God, he gives it freely. He gives it freely to you, to me, and to our enemies too, that God pours grace out. He pours grace out not dependent on the quality of who you are. He pours it out to everyone. I don't care who you are. Yeah, you sitting there going, no, not me. Yeah, he pours it out to you. He pours it out to the worst of the worst of the worst. He pours it out to Babylon. And if he pours it out to Babylon, he pours it out to you. He pours it out to those who go... There's no way God could ever want someone like me. Yeah. Someone like you. God pours it out there too. This is the scandal of grace. Jesus' movement was always about grace. It's why you see Jesus always going to the worst of the worst and closest with the worst of the worst. The New Testament will describe them as those that in polite society would deem sinners. And those are the ones who flocked to Jesus and among whom Jesus found his friends. It's the record of Jesus living in blessing. Those who were considered the worst of their days, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. It's why Jesus 
movement always resonated with the Gentiles, the classic enemies of God. Why Romans and Samaritans and Syrophoenicians came running to him because it's those who are broken, who know that they have nothing good within them, who come to realize what the amazing, wonderful, sweet, and powerful grace of God is all about and how beautiful that scandal truly is. I've got two stories for you. One that I'm going to show and one that I'm going to tell. Let's watch first. Through the cross, the partition between us and God has been removed. You can come home to God. St. Paul puts it like this. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God was in Christ. It's not that on the cross God punished some innocent third party, Jesus. That would be barbaric. No. God himself came to this earth in the person of his son. God was in Christ reconciling you and me to God. It's like the prodigal son, the story which Jesus told of a son who'd, who'd gone away from home, who'd left his father, who'd wandered away, and then he comes back home. I love Charlie Mackesy's sculpture to illustrate the prodigal son. This picture of the father, the loving father that Jesus described, who when the son comes home, when you and I come home, he embraces us. He hugs us, he kisses us, he loves us, he holds us. We're reconciled to him. We can have this close, intimate relationship with the Father. And when we're reconciled to God, what I've found is that helps to bring reconciliation to all our other relationships. So I'm often asked, why did you get involved with crime? I say it wasn't a conscious decision. I didn't see the careers lady at school and say, of course you can do an armed robbery. It was just there, it was all around us. And it all started with weed and drinking, cannabis, the usual stuff. Um, we used to steal badges off expensive cars and swap them like trading cards. And it just progressed to the entire car. And I got involved with the people who were really pulling all the strings. So we went up to this guy's house who owed them a few hundred pounds. It was, it was nothing to them. But the problem was he'd been going around telling everybody that he wasn't going to pay it. So they had to set an example. So they got this guy, he was in his garden, his little lad was there. So he got out of the car, grabbed this bloke, put him in the car, sat between us, and he drove up to uh, what's called Niner's Quarry and uh, pulled a petrol strimmer out of the boot of the car, gave it to me and said, do his feet. So strimmed his feet and just lacerated his feet. And this was my initiation. So that just moved on and on and on. Cut a long story short, Leeds Crown Court, courtroom number three, he handed me down seven and a half years. And I just thought to myself, that's it, gloves are off. If I'm gonna be bad, I'm gonna be the best kind of bad I can possibly be. Because I got moved from prison to prison to prison and put on category A, maximum security, because of my behavior. And there's this lad coming round, another inmate, he comes up to me and he says, uh, do you wanna go on an alpha course? I had no idea what he was talking about. I said, look, get out my face, sunshine, before I slap you. I thought no more of it. And next day, and then this kid's coming round with his clipboard again. So I'm just waiting for this kid to get within slapping range 
and he must have sensed something wasn't right because he blurted something out really quickly. He went, you get Wednesday afternoon at a bang up and you get free coffee and you get free biscuits. <gasps> All right, I'll see you on Wednesday. And we just started giving her a hard time, a really hard time. The thing that stopped me, it wasn't what they said because I wasn't really listening, but it was how they did it. They came back at me with love and compassion every single time. So I sat there on my bunk and I said the first real prayer I'd ever said in my life. I didn't know if I was doing it right or not. But the gist of it was, God, I need you to take away the anger, the violence, the hate. I need you to take away the addictions, which I've tried to fight and I just lose every time. And if you do that for me, I will live the rest of my life for you. But the next morning, I woke up as I always had done. Rolled over to grab the smoke as I always had done, but I couldn't touch it. Everything about it, the look, the thought, the smell, everything made me want to be sick. And I knew what I had to do, so I went and got my little stash and I put it straight out of the cell window. And as soon as they'd gone, I started to feel a bit better. I started to calm down a little bit, but I was still freaking out. So I just said to myself, Daryl, calm down, go get a wash, go get a shave. And as I started to get a wash, I looked in the mirror and just stopped dead. Because I didn't recognise my own reflection. I was like, that guy's smiling. Not just smiling, that guy's beaming. And I noticed I didn't just look different, I felt different. Everything had gone. It was as if someone had unscrewed the top of my head and just poured freezing cold water in and everything had been just washed out clean. So the chaplain comes onto the wing and I just told him absolutely everything. And he said, the man that went to bed last night is not the same man that's standing here this morning. You're a new creation. And that was it. I said, no more. No more fighting, no more drugs, no more nothing. If you owe me anything, forget it. If you're holding anything of mine, keep it. I don't want it, I'm done, I'm finished. Jesus has saved me. And then when it came time for my release, I knew I was gonna go into full-time ministry. Reverend Mark Finch, JP, a magistrate, and he said, would you consider coming to Runcorn near Liverpool? We've got a new church plant, we're just getting going. There's a big problem with young people and gangs and drugs, would you come? I knew it was the right place to go. I want to tell you the story about a man named Shaul from the Middle East, a terrorist operating predominantly in the area we call the West Bank, but even as far as the Golan Heights and even as far as Syria. He saw followers of Jesus as infidels of the one that in Arabic you would call Allah, the one that in Hebrew you would call Elohim, the one that in English we would call God. And he saw their very existence as a threat and a blasphemy to God. And so using the power of the religious state, he would harass them. He would find ways to have them arrested and prosecuted and dragged into courts and exposed. But more than that, like happens in, in truly most of the ways of persecution as it happens against people and especially Christians in the world today, he operated through mob action. You know, raising up the people 
to antagonize and to harass, to jeer and to humiliate and to do more than that, to drag out of homes, to drag Christians before the screaming crowds, to spit on them and pelt them and jeer at them and at least on one occasion was a part of a mob turning into a murder. This man, he talks about how even while on the way to terrorize believers, he is struck by Jesus. How this works, I don't know, but he comes face to face with Jesus and he meets him. And he comes to believe him. And he repents and gets baptized and begins to become one of the biggest spokesmen for Jesus there is. He changes his name to Paul and goes on to write half the New Testament. And this is what he writes in one of his letters. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Those whom God calls his people and those whom God does not. For you. For me. And for our enemies. This is the scandal of grace. And so to him eternal, the immortal and one true God, as he will continue to write, to him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.